I want to thank everybody for the warm welcome uh, that I've had this morning from the moment I drove in before 8 o'clock uh, into the parking lot. Uh, there's really a red carpet welcome here. I thank Stan and the elders for the invitation to bring the Word of God. It is a privileged responsibility to open the Word and teach the Word uh, to God's people. And welcome to everybody. You know, Venture is one church with two locations, on-site and online, and we're grateful for that. When Stan made mention just now about about he has family at the creek, so Indian Creek Christian Church in Franklin Township, Indianapolis, where the extreme southeast corner of the county. Uh, his brother, Mike, uh, I remember hiring Mike many years ago, more than 20 years ago, when he graduated from Lincoln Christian University as our middle school pastor. Mike stayed with us for 14 years, and then he segued into a family business, but now Mike has joined us at E2 Effective Elders, and he's on our team, and his desk is right next to mine, and it's a privilege to work with Stan's uh, brother, Mike. Mike is one of the elders at the creek as well, so there's a connection there. All right, now, we're going to get in the Word of God, uh, so buckle up. We're going to uh, trust Jesus to speak powerfully into our lives, and we want to be able to say to our family, perhaps today over lunch, the very moment when we encountered the hand of God stirring us. It might be when uh, we were in a lyric of a song, when we we were on our knees in prayer when we were opening the printed page of God's Word. So, look for Jesus. That's what makes worship, worship. Now, I want to begin with a love story, and this love story is true. It happened about the uh, turn of our century, the early 1900s, when a man named Ollie emigrated here from Norway, and he settled in the area of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This was back in the day when ladies would wear a long black dress or colored dress and carry a parasol, and guys would have a heavy wool suit on, even on a hot summer day. And Ollie met a young lady named Bess literally. And he invited her to a picnic lunch. They went to a city park. He rode a heavy wooden boat out to the island of that park. They had that picnic lunch, and Bess looked at him and asked, Ollie, huh? No ice cream? So he got into the boat, and he rode to the concession. He bought the ice cream. He rode very quickly because it was so hot that day. He handed her the ice cream, and she looked at him and asked, huh, Ollie, no hot fudge? So back into the boat he went, and he rode the boat back to the concession, bought the hot fudge, and he was sweating profusely. And halfway back to that island, he just stopped, and he floated on the water. And in that moment, now listen carefully, Ali Evinrude conceptualized the outboard motor. In that moment, in the early 1900s, Ali Evinrud thought, we can put a motor on this thing. He got back to the island with a hot fudge. Uh, they fell in love, got married, and lived happily ever after. Okay, let me just push pause here a minute. We got to get started on the right foot. In the name of Jesus, please be more Pentecostal than Presbyterian, okay? I like engagement. I like engagement. Another love story. We like love stories. This one comes out of New Zealand. And in New Zealand, there are not that, that many Christians. Well, there happened to be a young man, young lady, both believers in Jesus. They fell in love, got engaged, and they chose 1 John 4.18 for the theme of their wedding. The preacher used it in the wedding ceremony. The bride had it printed on the invitation. She had it printed on the napkins for the reception. She even asked the baker, please put 1 John 4.18 on the side of my wedding cake. 
Fast forward, it's reception time. The bride and the groom come in, and she's thrilled. They love my cake. Look at all the people taking pictures of my cake. The time came to cut the cake. And when she went up with her new husband to cut the cake, she noticed there was something wrong with the cake. The baker, not being a believer, not knowing Christianity, he left that number one off, and it just said John 4, 18. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. <laughs> That's where Jesus meets the woman at the well uh, in John chapter 4. That one little detail changed the story. He missed that one little detail. Now, the reason I share that with you is we're going to go diving into a love story in the book of Ruth. And we're not going to miss a single little detail of this love story, all right? Now, a little bit of context before we get into the content. Always context before content. This took place about a thousand years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So, think 10 centuries. But what is so cool about this, this short little love story in the Old Testament, this young widow named Ruth... She meets a guy by the name of Boaz. They fall in love. They get married. And from their lineage, who eventually is born? What's his name? Anybody? Jesus. That's right. You talk about a story with a happy ending. It's off the chart. So with that being said, now let's start chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. They went to Moab and they lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, you might be thinking, how on earth is this a love story? It's phenomenal. Just stay with me. The, the, the message is shaped like a funnel. We're about right here. We just started tilling the soil. Now, uh, you might be thinking, where is he going with this? Kind of like a murder mystery. We want to figure it out before they tell us the solution, right? I'll let you know when we finish today. Don't finish before I do, okay? So we're about right here. Let's go digging in that text. In the days when the judges ruled, can we know what those days were like? Sure thing. All we have to do, just put a marker here, go one page previous to the book of Judges. And look right there, last chapter, chapter 21, last verse, verse 25, and what does it say? In those days, in the days when the judges ruled, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. If you had a goat and I wanted your goat, I took your goat because I would do as I saw fit. They were living without a rule of law in the days when the judges ruled, no rule of law. They were living on the edge of anarchy in the days when the judges ruled. People did as they saw fit. So here's our first observation. We don't want to miss this little detail. The days were dark, morally dark when the judges ruled. Now let's go on. Notice there was a famine in the land and a man from Bethlehem in Judah. Bethlehem is mentioned more than once. That stands out to us. 
Together with his wife and two sons, they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So the famine was so severe, they left Bethlehem. They were displaced. They had to flee the country like Ukrainians are fleeing the country even now. Now, what is significant about this, and we don't want to miss this little detail, the name Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread. What were they known for? Their grain. What were they known for? Their agriculture. They were the agricultural epicenter of Israel. If anyone would have bread, Bethlehem would, but the famine was so severe that even the agricultural supplier of the country was out of food. The famine was so hard. That's our second observation. The days were difficult. Not only were they morally dark, they were incredibly difficult. Well, check this out. Names speak volumes. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Killian. Now, we might be looking at that, oh, that's an interesting factoid. Well, there's something there that we don't want to miss. When a child was born, it was dad's job to name that child in biblical culture. Example, An angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says to Joseph, you will give him the name Jesus, for that will save, for he will save his people from their sin. The angel Gabriel told Joseph, this is the boy's name. Give him the name Jesus. So in this instance, when Naomi is giving birth to to her two sons, it's her husband Elimelech who names them, and Malon and Killian, are you ready for this? mean in Hebrew, sickly and diseased. So that means when those boys were born, they almost could have died. The days included disease and death. That means that Naomi did not have one but two troubled pregnancies. Maybe she almost lost those boys during the pregnancy to miscarriage. But she goes full term. They are born. They do not die. They are born, but their name sickly and diseased. And then, more death, because in verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And where did he die? He died in a foreign country. And remember, because of the uh, burial custom of the day, you were buried on the day that you, anybody, died. On the day you died. Just like Jesus, he's, he's died on the cross, and immediately they took down his body, they put him in the tomb. There was not a two day visitation followed by a service, followed by a funeral lunch. You were buried on the day you died. So Elimelech dies, and his widow puts him in foreign soil. There are not friends. There are not relatives. Family doesn't come in to help her grieve. Like when Mary and Martha buried Lazarus, we read in the text that people came to grieve with those two women, not in this case. I've been on many mission trips by God's grace around the world. I cannot imagine being buried in another country. That would take Leah's grief off the chart. So we we do not want to miss that little detail. Now let's go on. The boys, verse 4, they married Moabite women. Well, what's what's about that? One one named Orpah, the other Ruth. This is simple to understand. Good Jewish boys, by Jewish law, the Torah, were to marry good Jewish girls. They were not to marry outside of the nation of Israel. And here, they are marrying Moabites. Now, and why is that significant? Because in Psalm 108, we read God's, God's calling Moab his wash basin. Moab is my wash basin. I, I would venture to think you've got here at Venture 
a janitor's closet, and in that janitor's closet, there is a mop sink. That's exactly that word in Hebrew. God was calling Moab his mop sink. And these boys, they marry women from Moab. The days were disappointing, incredibly so. Why? Because widow Naomi could say to her two sons, you know better than this. We didn't raise you to make this kind of a decision. If your father were alive today, kind of thinking. One more observation. We don't want to miss this little detail. After they had lived there about 10 years, see, they're there a long time, more than a decade. Verse 5, both Malon and Killian also died. It looks like they lived up to their what? Their names, sickly and disease. They predeceased mom. So not only did mom put her husband in foreign soil, then one of her boys died, and then another of her sons died, and she buries all three of her loved ones in soil. And it says here, so Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Think with me, that would be uh, absolute despair. The days were full of despair. Why? Because Naomi did not have a life insurance policy to redeem. She didn't have uh, social security death benefits for which to file. She didn't have a 401k to cash in. When a, a wife and mother was now widowed, what was her security for the years ahead? She would be cared for by her grown children, sons, exactly. Just like Jesus on the cross, he says to John, uh, son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. He was caring for his mother because he was about to die on that cross. That was the culture of the day. And this woman's despair is so significant, so significant when the famine is finally over and she goes back to Bethlehem. Check this out. Chapter 1, verse 20. She's going back into town. The women of the town, they haven't seen her for more than a decade. Could this be Naomi? Could this be her? And notice what she says in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Mara means bitter. Bitter, the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Do not miss this little detail. If something is repeated in Scripture, it is important. God wants it to capture our attention. She says, the, the Almighty has made my life all uh, very bitter. Who, who's the Almighty? What, what, what's his name? That would be God. God has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but who? God, the Lord, has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord, that would be God, has afflicted me. The Almighty, that would be God, has brought misfortune upon me. Not once, twice, three, but four times, Naomi shakes her fist at God. You did this to me. She was angry with God. And she told all those women in Bethlehem so. All right. We're going to push pause on this Netflix love story. Do not go get popcorn, all right? Just stay right here. We got to figure out this text. How is this a love story? We're, we're about right here, okay? Stay with me. It might be that some of us in the room remember whisk laundry detergent. And there was a commercial for a long time for whisk laundry detergent 
where the homemaker, the wife, was washing her husband's shirts. And she had soapy hands. She was pushing her hair back with her soapy hands. And the commercial said, oh, she's tried soaking them out. She's tried scrubbing them out. But still, she gets what? Anybody know? Ring around the collar. Oh, those filthy rings, the commercial said. She's tried soaking them out. She's tried scrubbing them out. But still, she gets ring around the collar. Now, that commercial inferred that that lady did not know how to do the laundry. I believe it's asking us an obvious question, when is that guy going to learn to wash his neck? That's the question that should have been asked. And I believe that there is an obvious question that we need to ask, and that is, how does this love story in the Old Testament speak into our lives today? I believe very simply. When, when somebody comes up to me after being a preacher for 40 years and they go, oh, you read that book? Oh, yeah, I do. That old-fashioned, irrelevant, out-of-date book, oh, yes, because it's not old-fashioned, it's not irrelevant, it's not out-of-date. It is written by the hand of God. It is inspired, it is inerrant without error, it is infallible, incapable of error. And what happened a thousand years before Jesus was put into a manger still is alive today with us. Watch this. What happened then Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, is happening now. These days are dark. Are they not? In the days when the judges ruled, everyone did as he saw fit. Hey, if I want to put a brick through your business window, I'll put a brick through your business window. If I want to loot your store, I'll loot your store. Uh, Leah and I, we have two sons, both in the ministry. One is a police officer in New Orleans. Aaron flew through Indianapolis last night, spent the night. I said, son, how's ministry going? And you might be thinking, how is he in the ministry? Because not only does he wear a Glock, he wears a cross. He is the chaplain of hundreds of officers in New Orleans. He reminds me, hey, Dad, when you come down next month, remember, slow down. I can arrest you. Okay, son. And... Um, <clears throat> Aaron said last night, he said, it's a, crime is off the chart. He said, people in downtown New Orleans, they know at night, do not stop for a red light. They do not stop for a red light. They look if traffic's coming, and then they move through that intersection because he said, car hijackings are off the chart. People do as they see fit. We're living on the edge of anarchy. Boy, that looks like life today. What about this? Days are difficult. And I'm not only talking about the horrific difficulty halfway around the world in Ukraine. I'm talking about difficulty here right now. How many people are struggling with inflation that is higher than 40 years ago? How many people are struggling to rub two nickels together? People are having difficulty at work, keeping their jobs, disease, death. There are people who are struggling with a, a cancer battle, or maybe they have complications from COVID. A friend of mine had a double lung transplant because of COVID, and he, he's struggling today. A dear friend of mine is in stage four with two months to live of pancreatic cancer, a dear beloved friend and brother. I called him again yesterday. Jim, how are you? How can I help you? Days are full of disappointment. People walking away from promises until death do us part. How many marriages are hanging by a thread because somebody is not living up to a promise, a commitment that they made? How many people are disappointed because they did not get that job? How many people are disappointed because they did not get a raise? 
How many people are living in a state of despair today? You know that today, uh, out of the many people who will take their lives committing suicide in America today, the largest demographic of those who are suicidal are our American veterans. It's off the chart. You see, what happened a thousand years before Jesus was born looks like life today. And, and here's my question. The obvious question for all of us is, who's your one and who is my one? You and I, whether we live in a neighborhood, a condominium complex, if we're in an apartment building, a dormitory, wherever we live, we are surrounded by people who are broken and in need of the help and hope that only Jesus brings. They're all around us. They might be in our circle of friends. They might be in our extended family. They might be right here in our immediate family. And they need us. They need us because they might be struggling with a drink or drug of choice, with pornography, whatever it is. They're, they're going through a difficult time. They're, they're struggling with illness, injury. They're, they're wallowing in grief because they just buried a loved one. And the grief is so thick you can cut it with a knife. The days are disappointing. People walking away from one another. Uh, let, let me just stop right here. I'm a preacher of 40 years, 30 at the creek on the southeast side of Indianapolis. Some of the greatest hurt right now is happening among ministers across America. More ministers are quitting and leaving the ministry now than at any other time in the last 50 years. They are tired, they are exhausted, they are weary, they are disappointed for a number of reasons. And if you would give me 30 more minutes, I could bring them all up on the screen, but I'm not going to do that. Let me just say this, you have so much for which to be thankful here at Venture Christian Church with your ministerial team, your leadership here. You are blessed beyond measure. Do you want to show your appreciation to stand on the team? <laughs> Absolutely. I can't do this. Can you do this? You have so much for which to be grateful. Encourage them. Always stand beside them. Speak words of affirmation into their lives. Build them up because we're living in an era when so many people are broken and disappointed. Despair. Who do we know that's in a state of despair? They're ready to give up. All right, so what we're going to do now, this really is a love story. We're about right here, okay? We're going to heat things up. We're going, to get, we're going to push resume. We're going to get back into the love story, and we're going to see how did this really end up being a love story. Ready? So let's go to chapter one. The famine is over, and uh, Naomi, the widow, she says to her two younger widows, go back on home right here in Moab. Go home to your moms, your dads, your families. Fall in love, get married, have kids. You can start all over. Orpah, she says, all right, let me think about that for a moment. Okay, I'm out of here. And she goes back home. But not Ruth. Ruth declared the most incredible uh, statement. Ready? Verse 16. She says, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you. Don't turn back from you. I don't want to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. That's off the chart. That's incredible. Because what she's doing here, she is declaring two types of love. 
in this declaration, first of all, there's an outward love. And you might be thinking, well, what do I mean by that? It's, it's right there. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people, your family, your friends in Bethlehem are going to become my family and friends. And not only that, but your God is going to become my God. I'm going to convert. I'm going to reject all of these many idols of the Moabites, and I'm going to follow only the God of Israel. She's going to convert. You talk about an outward action. Now, how we want to really understand that, we don't want to miss this little detail. In Bible culture, people traveled about 100 miles from home in their lifetime. You and I would travel more than that in a week. A hundred miles in their lifetime. Now, check this out, chapter 2, verse 11. She meets up with Boaz, her future husband. Boaz, he, he spots this uh, young thing in his field there picking up grain. You talk about a head turner. He turns to her and he says in verse 11, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother. See, her mom and dad were still alive. When she left, they were still alive. How you left your father and mother, how you left your homeland, how you came to live with a people you did not know before. You talk about an outward love. So, Ruth would have said, hey, mom, dad, you know, I'm leaving. I'm going to Bethlehem. Let's have a big family reunion. Come on now. We're going to have fried, uh, fried chicken and mashed potatoes and gravy, green beans. We're going to have tossed salad. We're going to have uh, coconut cream pie for dessert. Come on, those homemade yeast rolls, mom. Come on now, because you will never see my face, what, again. It was goodbye for good. Come on, brothers and sisters, nephews and nieces, one more hug. Come on, one more hug because you will never see me alive again. You and I cannot wrap our brain around that. I've been emailing friends in Ukraine, uh, in, in the city of Harrison, been there multiple times on mission trips. We just want to know they're still alive. We can do that technologically. Ruth could not have done that. No tweet, no Instagram, no Facebook, no uh, uh, email, no voicemail, no calls, not even snail mail. This is goodbye for good. You talk about a sacrificial love. And then, she says, and where you die, there I will die, and there I will be buried. That is an onward love. Mom, I'm not getting you back to Bethlehem and taking you to Goodwill to get you some pots and pans and dishes and some sheets and towels and set you up in housekeeping and some efficiency, and then I'm, I, I'm not coming back here. I'm going to take you there. I'm going to stay with you there. I'm gonna, on the day of your death, I'm going to make sure that you have a God-honoring funeral, and then I'm going to decorate your grave, and Mom, on the day that I die, I'm going to be buried right next to you. Do you get this, Mom? You talk about an onward love. That is off the chart. And what makes that so intense is this. Notice, she says, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Now, what she did there, this is huge. Those of us who are in the room who are older will get this. Leah and I have been married 43 years. We are now in Club Med. That would be Medicare. We got our Medicare cards in the mail, okay? Now, back in the day, I remember if we were summoned to a court of law to appear as a witness... Back in the day, we would be called to the witness stand. The court bailiff would come up. The judge would have us stand there. We would have to raise what hand? Anybody? The right hand. And where would we put the left hand? Do you remember? On the 
Bible. And we would have to say after the judge, I do solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me who? God. So help me God. Where did our court system get that? Right here from the, the Word of God. That is exactly what Ruth did. She took an oath. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. In the name of Almighty God of Israel, I make this promise that nothing but death will separate you and me. That's off the chart. See, the court system didn't get it from anywhere but the Word of God. This book is so foundational to our nation. Don't let anybody ever tell you anything different. So, an outward love and an onward love. Think with me, who is your one? Who's your one? Who's my one? That's struggling with darkness, that's struggling with difficulty, that is uh, struggling with uh, disease or grief of death. Who's the one? Who's the one that's going through the valley of discouragement, of uh, disappointment, or even the valley of the shadow of death through great despair? Who's the one that we could show the outward love, sacrificial of Jesus, love of Jesus, and we would do it day after day after day after day? Is it even possible to live this way? Oh, yeah. Let me quickly tell you the story of John Knight. John and his wife, uh, Denise, their story is uh, told by their pastor in a book that their pastor wrote. The, the guy's name is John Piper, very famous pastor in America. And in his book, he tells the story of the Knight family who are part of his church. As a matter of fact, Piper interviewed John on a podcast of theirs. And here, here's the brief take of the story. John and Denise had their first child. A little boy was born to them, and they called him Paul, baby Paul. The day that he was born, he went into the NICU unit because he did, did not nearly survive. He, he was severely uh, traumatized at birth in terms of what was wrong with him. And the greatest of what was wrong with him was that baby Paul was born blind because he was born without eyes. And in that moment, John and Denise were crushed. They were in a state of utter despair. And John tells a story. I remember standing next to his bassinet in the NICU unit, and I looked at him connected to all of these cables and tubes, and there he is without eyes. And I just looked at the ceiling, and I said, God, you are cruel. You are mean. You do this to me, not to him. What did he ever do to you? And from that day on, John and Denise left the church. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus, nothing. How could he do that? Very much like Naomi, who was so angry with God. Do you know anybody angry with God? They're all around us. So, fast forward. Baby Paul was able to go home from the hospital, and a couple in the church, they knew what had happened to the knights, and they went after him. With one act of outward love after another, their name, Carl and Jerry Lynn. Jerry Lynn would go to the grocery. She'd get little gifts for her friend Denise, take them to the house, knock on the door, ring the bell, but Denise would never open the door. So she just left gift after gift after gift on the stoop of that house trying to encourage her friend. Carl, he would mow his lawn, and when he'd get done, he'd go down to his buddy's house and work in the yard, just hoping that John would come out and talk to him, but never did. 
One day, the kids of Carl and Jerry Lynn were in the kitchen, their four kids, making some cookies. Mom came in and said, what are you kids doing? You're making a mess. Oh, we're baking cookies. So she was happy. And then the kids added to that, oh, they're for baby Paul, and her heart sank because she knew that her kids would be disappointed. The cookies came out of the oven. They cooled. They, the kids put them into a basket, and they said, come on, Mom, let's go. Come on, let's go. And they went to the house, rang the bell, knocked on the door, no response. But then only as little kids can do, they started yelling. Hey, baby Paul, baby Paul, open the door. Come on, we want to play. We got cookies for you. And the door did open, just a crack, and Denise fell sobbing into the arms of Jerry Lynn, her dear friend. And Jerry Lynn just held her. Fast forward, Paul, Denise, baby Paul, uh, John, Denise, baby Paul, they went to Carl and Jerry Lynn's house for dinner. After dinner, the four adults were sitting at the table talking, and they heard this sound, and they said, what's that noise? That's odd. What an odd noise. They got up from the table, walked into the family room, and there were Carl and Jerry Lynn's uh, kids playing with baby Paul on the carpet. They were gently turning him and rolling him, tickling him, and he was making happy sounds that John and Denise had never heard before. And John said, look at that. Your kids are treating our son as if he were human. And Carl said, we love that boy, just like we love you. Fast forward, it wasn't too long after that, that John and Denise showed up at the door of the church, and who was there to welcome them? Carl and Jerry Lynn. Jerry Lynn just scoops that little guy up, takes him to the nursery, says, I'm taking him to the nursery. I'm going to kiss him. I'm going to hold him. I'm going to rock him. I'm going to tell him over and again how much Jesus loves him. And you two, you get in there. And you let Jesus love on you. Fast forward, end of the story. John and Denise started a ministry to parents with children of special needs. They could have been forgotten. They could have been left out to pasture. But somebody had one act of another of sacrificial outward love that never gave up. We can live this way today with whoever that one is in our mind right now. What's that look like? It's like uh, the hands of Jesus. You know, a, a tremendous work of art. Michelangelo carved this statue called the Pieta. It is in Rome. It's at St. Peter's Basilica. I remember when I saw that. I, I, was deep, I just stood there staring. It's huge. It's enormous. And I don't know if Mary held the lifeless body of her son or not, but Michelangelo, he called that pieta, which means the pity in English. Such compassion, pity. Now, let's move away from polished marble, shall we? Hands of flesh. Some years ago, when Syrians were fleeing uh, oppression, they got into boats and they made their way to Turkey and to Greece, fleeing persecution. And a little boy named Alan Kurdi. This little guy, when this happened to him, was the age of our youngest grandchild. It just broke my heart. This rescue worker in Turkey runs out into the surf and scoops up into his arms the lifeless three-year-old body of Alan. His mom, his older brothers, so many on the boat that they were fleeing on, capsized. The hands of Jesus, compassion, pity. 
Maybe you remember this picture. Uh, happened some years ago. It went viral across America. There was a man by the name of Timothy who? Mick Vey, who detonated a bomb and over 160 uh, innocent, unsuspecting Americans died when the uh, Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building collapsed on them in what city, remember? Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And this guy, Chris, a firefighter, he goes into the rubble and he finds little one-year-old Bailey Elman. Mom and dad were waiting and waiting and waiting, just hoping that their little girl would be alive. And firefighter Chris scoops up little Bailey in his arms and brings that little lifeless baby out to mom and dad. Chris became a follower of Jesus because of that day. And he travels America telling people about the hope of Jesus. Who's your one? Uh, not that long ago, this appeared on the evening news. This is taking place out in Utah. And underneath that car is a 21-year-old uh, student at Utah State University. His name, Brandon Wright. He was driving this motorcycle that collided head-on with this sedan. He is pinned underneath that car, and this young lady notices that he is still alive, unconscious, but alive. Now, what could happen at any moment? The car could what? explode, and these people could be killed. A few people tried to lift that car, but they couldn't, so they yell, and they get help. And what one person could not do, a whole team of people did. Now, watch this guy in the green shirt. He reaches under, and he pulls the foot of Brandon, and Brandon comes out from beneath that car that could have exploded at any time, killing all of them, including Brandon. And on the evening news, this was shown, this clip, and immediately... Uh, I thought of the tremendous courage and compassion, the compassion of those people. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, Jesus said. The golden what? Rule. If you and I were under that car, would we not want somebody to come? If your son was under that car, would you not want somebody to come? Absolutely we would. At the end of the week, this young man is dismissed from the hospital. That was on the evening news as well. Incredible. He's in a wheelchair, and all of the press is there, and he, he's trying to speak through his sobbing. And he said, I would be dead if you had not come and saved my life. I would have been burned to death. And when Brandon said that, I was reminded of the book of Jude right in front of Revelation, and it says that you and I, the church, we live to snatch people from the flames. And obviously, Jude is not talking about the flames of a burning car or a house. The flames of where? Anybody? Of hell. Hell is real. And that's the purpose of the church, you and I, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to, to people who are in pain. And you know them just as I know them. They have a name. They have a face. And we need to ask the question, who's our one? We belong to ascending God. And Jesus said before he went to heaven, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And if you and I wear his name, we are to go to that one that the Holy Spirit even now is breaking our hearts with. Would you pray with me, please? 
Father, we're so grateful to you that we have life everlasting because of you, Jesus, our Savior. You took the wrath, the fury, the rage of God for us. And how grateful we are, Holy Spirit, that you now inhabit us. And may we in your strength go. May we in your strength be the hands and feet of you, Jesus, to the one that you lay on our minds, every one of us. Empower us to do so. And, and Father, I ask that you would dispatch legions of righteous warring angels over your bride called Venture Christian Church that the warring angels of God would stop the advance of the evil one, that every marriage, every family, every child, every older person, every single person, that the work of our hands, the health in our bodies, everything about us would be under your protective care, and you would empower your bride here to be at her best as she reaches for one and then one and then one. And so now to you, who are able to do the immeasurably more than all we ask or think, according to your power that is at work within us, to you be glory both now in your church and in Christ Jesus our Lord throughout all the generations forever and ever. And together we say, amen.